You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Next year is going to be an ugly election year in which you can expect very little to get done. The debt ceiling has become a pernicious political tool which doesn't help either party. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. We're confident at the end of the day that the Senate is going to put American families first. 330 million Americans are expecting and waiting for us to move the ball forward and get stuff done. And when that doesn't happen, it is frustration. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. We start the fastest hour in politics with tensions on the other side of the world and America's evolving relationship with China. Joining us to talk about it is DJ Peterson, president of Longview Global Advisors, a political advisory firm based in L.A. that brings information to investors and corporations. He was formerly with the Eurasia Group and the Rand Corporation and spends a good deal of time analyzing our foreign policy. DJ, welcome to Bloomberg Radio. Thank you for having me. The line that we've been hearing uh, from the Biden administration is that our relationship is one of competition but not conflict. How does that, how do you rationalize that with the idea of this being a Cold War? Well, we don't, you know, the Soviet Union and the United States never had a hot war. And so, but they were in a strategic competition. And I think that is and very much the formulation um, in Washington. Now, the Biden administration does not want to have all the, 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 the conflicts associated with the Cold War, proxy wars in other countries, for instance, um, very uh, strict uh, technological separation, bifurcation. Um, but the road that the United States is going down, the road that Beijing is going down, is one that is ultimately around competition. And um, the, I think it's really important to think about the previous generation of growing U.S.-China economic ties as really a past era. And now we are really going more, much more towards disengagement economically, technologically, politically, socially, culturally. Hence the action that we've seen in Chinese stocks, for instance. Is, is that relationship with the U.S. over? I think for, for many investors, uh, China is an important diversification part of a uh, diversification strategy. It is a large global economy. Um, it, it has increasingly deep markets, capital markets, um, and the bond markets, for instance, as well as equity markets. And so on one hand, it is attractive. But if you look at, for instance, 
the return on the Shanghai uh, Stock Exchange over the last five years, it's really been up and down and maybe has returned about 13, 15% over the past five years. That's compared with 110% return from the S&P 500. So in many ways, China hasn't delivered on uh, the investment uh, that I think a lot of people were expecting. Yeah. And I think that's going to be a much more um, important question in the coming year. Certainly didn't this year. Uh, interesting reaction, maybe predictable, uh, from the Chinese after President Biden signed the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, it includes a carve-out, some $7 billion for what we call the Pacific Deterrence Initiative. Are moves like this helpful, or do they make it more difficult to maintain a cold, not hot war? That's exactly right. It, it, it is very difficult to maintain um, kind of what we might call strategic stability or, or tit-for-tat. Moves that the U.S. sees is in, its, is its, in its interests are pretty much seen by Beijing as zero-sum or going against its interests. Yeah. And so U.S. efforts, for instance, a legislation in Washington right now to invest significantly in science and technology, is seen by Beijing as a threat. But the U.S. initiative is in part a response to now many years of heavy Chinese investment in domestic science and technology. So it is very much a tit for tat. Um, and in some ways, we'll see great benefits from in- innovation in both countries, and both we will see benefits across border But I think this kind of zero-sum mentality that anything that we do is seen negatively by the uh, by Beijing and vice versa is just I think very a a signature hallmark of a Cold War era. It's interesting because Beijing accused the U.S. of uh, of harboring an obsolete Cold War mentality in the statement that followed the signing of the NDAA that also include, by the way, this ban on purchasing products made by by Uyghur forced labor camps. The foreign ministry spokesperson who who wrote the statement called this political manipulation. Are these the kind of of words, this is the kind of rhetoric you expect, or is this actionable? You know, I think it's it's very telling. Um, The Chinese government has become profoundly dismayed with its strategic relationship in the past with the United States. And you see it in their language. They are just not pulling any punches. They're calling it like they see it with quite hostile language. Now, obviously, there's many voices in the U.S., um, in Congress, for instance, that have also very strident anti-Chinese rhetoric. But from a government to, on a government-to-government basis, this is, it's pretty strident. And I think it, it signals the depth of the ambivalence, if not anger and frustration with the other side. And again, in many ways, going back to your question about Beijing and the Olympics, mm-hmm. um, it's just playing out right there in on the playing field, so to speak. How real becomes the concern about Taiwan in 2022? Just, just breathing the word out loud, the name uh, of the island nation was enough to get President Biden in a little bit of hot water. Do we actually believe that this could end in military action? If you think about the Cold War and the U.S.-Soviet relationship, for the first 10, 15 years of of that Cold War, and basically until the Cuban Missile Crisis, it was very much an unregulated competition. 
And then after the Cuban Missile Crisis, the country started, you know, uh, agreeing to arms control and regularizing the competition. Right now, we don't have that with China. There's no regularization um, or kind of guardrails on the on on the conflict or the tensions. We see this obviously in places like cyberspace and cybersecurity. Taiwan is very much in that realm because the nature of the U.S. commitment to Taiwan is actually quite vague. Um, and the level of concern in Beijing about Taiwan's independence, it's very clear, but it is they aren't sending a very clear signal, or we don't really know what is their ultimate red line. And so what we're seeing in 2022 is that this competition over this island is going to become more complex. If you think about Hong Kong, Hong Kong was the Berlin of the 1960s. It's lost. It's been lost in in some ways to the West. Now the next field of play is Taiwan. So what's your thought, if you can pull out your crystal ball, and how far China can push the line on this? Obviously, they want to test our limits. Well, that's a great question. One of the things that we learned about the Soviet Union was its leadership in many ways on the big issues, was very risk-averse. Obviously, we never got into a hot, direct conflict, and in many ways, they avoided that. And China experts, people who understand very closely the kind of, as well as they can, the internal thinking in in, in China, is the Chinese government also is risk-averse in many ways. And so, the building up this notion of of kind of a, a cross straits conflict uh, ballooning or kind of erupting into a hot war, mm-hmm. I think is is more unlikely. But it is it is one of these fat tail risks. Um, is it five percent? Is it ten percent? Which has a tremendous effect um, if you think about it on global stability. If it's not fighting over Taiwan, it could be fighting over cybersecurity. That is a threat that's been outlined clearly by this White House. How prepared are we to respond? Well, it's it's interesting. If you talk to cybersecurity experts, they say that the number of attacks in 2021 just was a record. And obviously, they're coming from many different um, sources. China is just one of them. Um, again, one of the, 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 the key challenges is, unlike with the nuclear weapons competition, which was state to state, and we knew that the Soviet Union had missiles, and we could, we could negotiate with them directly. The problem with cybersecurity is there's deniability. It's like, who are the actors? And are they really directly controlled by the state? And then how do you ring fence them in a, say, in some kind of security agreement? Mm-hmm. So, Again, it's a very unregulated field of competition right now. And in many ways, as we saw, for instance, last year with the shutdown of the Colonial Pipeline, it, ha- it can has potentially significant and unexpected circumstances. I just wonder if that is the, the, the battleground that we should be looking at as opposed to a, a traditional war. They, I think it, certainly from a business perspective, that is, that is essential. Um, we have... Uh, again, just proliferation, not only in attacks, but in the, in the, in the kinds of attacks. Um, and, the, and obviously, with the U.S. economy, with the global economy so data uh, dependent and, and, and dependent on data flows, um, it's every year, obviously, we're becoming more and more exposed. We'll have more ahead with DJ Peterson on Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. 
This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for spending part of your Wednesday with us on Bloomberg Sound On as we spend time reviewing our relationship with China, where we've been this year, where we may be going in the new year with an expert. DJ Peterson is president of Longview Global Advisors. The Biden administration will start the new year by boycotting the Beijing Olympics. As we consider China's relationship with the U.S., how will it help to define politics here in America in 2022? I think we need to consider the relationship as Cold War II. I was trained um, as an expert on the first Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And so many of the hallmarks of that superpower competition I see now unfolding, both in Washington and in Beijing. DJ, obviously COVID is a whole story of its own here. I wonder if you see President Biden and President Xi actually getting in the same room at some point in the new year. Will there be more dialogue and will it depend on COVID? Right. That's a great question. Interestingly, what we saw in 2021 was that the Chinese did not join many very important global discussions in person. They phoned it in. Part of that was because of COVID. And part of that was, again, this ambivalence um, and reticence of losing face on a public stage. So that's, again, I think an important question for 2022. Clearly, Beijing Olympics is not going to be the platform that they had with the Summer Olympics years ago. Uh, In in fact, the Olympics this year, the Winter Olympics, is probably going to shine a much more, uh, let's say, uh, a lot more scrutiny on the country and question. And of course, because of COVID in the background, it's certainly not going to have the celebratory atmosphere that Beijing would have liked to have. It's an interesting idea. The the, the thought that the world will be watching Beijing, uh, even if the U.S. is not there, we're doing what we're doing, although our athletes will be taking part. I just wonder what kind of stories and what level of scrutiny, to use your term, uh, might result from that. I don't see, frankly, I don't see a lot of positive stories coming out of the Olympics for China. Uh, There'll be a lot of questions, as as was with the last Winter Olympics in Russia, about uh, human rights issues around the, uh, you know, the the, the model, the the economic model of Winter Games um, and how sustainable it is, or is it only sustained by authoritarian regimes? Um, Of course, the human rights issue will be always be playing in the background. Um, So I think for Western brands, that have invested heavily in the Olympics, it's going to be very difficult to get a lot of lift from these games. And then, of course, you have COVID in people's minds or elsewhere. So what's the upshot for China? Not much. It'll, be a, it'll obviously get a lot of domestic play. Um, paradoxically, what you're seeing is very strict lockdowns in China right now around fear of Omicron. And uh, that's, you know, in itself creating a lot of domestic disruption and domestic frustration. Um, so in some ways, with the, with the threat of Omicron, which appears to be evading zero, even zero tolerance policy, um, it's very difficult to see how this is going to be a very happy story, even at home in China. 
If U.S. investors are done with China, getting back to kind of where we started our conversation, we have this this difficult situation with the Olympics to start the new year. This could be a an economically damaging year uh, for Beijing. What do you see happening to their economy? Well, I think there's several forces in play here. First of all, the long-term trend, which is um, uh, sharply slower population growth. Another factor that you have seen is that the consumer economy, the domestic consumer economy, hasn't grown as fast as the leadership would like, despite all of its efforts. And then you see issues such as in commercial real estate and the Boston commercial real estate, and the government's, in many cases, very um, intentional efforts to restructure and unwind the problems in that sector still has very significant negative impact on consumer sentiment because so many households have invested in real estate as, 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 as part of their nest egg. So there, and then you, of course you have the COVID lockdowns. And so you have, I think, several uh, pressures, downward pressures on domestic growth in 2022 um, and in the future years. And what we've seen is the, the Chinese government itself has really, is trying to really significantly um, temper expectations for growth in the coming year, uh, you know, in the five percent range, whereas in the past it's been in the eight percent range. This is a significant shift. In some cases, it's much needed, but corporate strategies glo- of global companies are really going to have to rethink kind of their growth expectations for China in 2022 and beyond. DJ Peterson, president of Longview Global Advisors, appreciate your insights today. We'd love to. Compare notes in 22 and see where we are. I look forward to it. Thank you for having me. Coming up, we assemble the panel with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. For the rest of the hour, we'll have their take on all this, and we'll check traffic and markets for you on the way. So stay with us on the fastest hour in politics. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. DJ Peterson described our relationship with China as Cold War II. Let's see how the panel feels about it. As we bring in Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Rick, I know you have strong feelings about China. How will the U.S.-China relationship be defined in the new year, knowing that we're essentially starting the new year with a boycott of the Olympics? 
Yeah, I think that we've been struggling to find the right adjectives to describe this relationship between the U.S. and, and China. And, 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 and certainly at a minimum, it's competition, right? Mm-hmm. It's competition economically. That's the White House wants. Uh, it's competition militarily. Uh, and, 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 and what you hope is that that competition does not digress uh, uh, into uh, conflict. Uh, that's the other C word that you don't want to use when it, in relation to China. Jeannie, when we think about 22, what will it involve, knowing that we've upset China apparently repeatedly about Taiwan, even with the signing of the NDAA? Does there need to be an in-person summit between Presidents Biden and Xi? I think that would be a step forward. I mean, we have seen, uh, you know, talks. Um, it would be great to see an in-person. Um, you know, I think one of the big challenges here goes well beyond the Biden administration. You can go back to Donald Trump and before. It's been the fact that the United States plans vis-a-vis China are difficult to tease out. They are unclear. The goals, yes, as Rick mentioned, more competition. But what does that mean exactly? And what's the strategy they're going to use? I think one of the things during the campaign, Joe Biden's campaign with Donald Trump, we talked about was that there was supposed to be a difference in terms of his approach to foreign policy. We haven't seen that yet. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, a year in, that's still where we are. I think the White House is right to be concerned about what happens vis-a-vis China next year and beyond. But the United States needs a concerted strategy. And, you know, one of the ones we hear an awful lot about these days is a, you know, a renewed focus on containment of China. What that means exactly is something the administration is going to have to define. And so far, we haven't heard that yet. Rick, how do you keep a cold war from becoming a hot war? And I ask you that knowing that uh, you just breathe the word Taiwan and you're going to get flyovers You're going to have some kind of an interception in the South China Sea. This is real stuff. It's not just rhetoric. It's actual military action. It's actual military action, but it's not conflict. That's right. The question is, how do you avoid the conflict? And I think that that may be self-defining. China itself uh, uh, is a new uh, superpower when it comes to military, right? They've just built all the systems, the Navy systems, the satellite systems, the Air Force, the Navy is uh, all brand new, right? The, you know, and, and, and we still outnumber them with ships and planes and those things. But, and, and so it may be some time before the Chinese actually feel competitive with the U.S. Uh, it, is that three to five years? Uh, and, and we may have that window inside uh, these world events to stop any conflict from happening because we still potentially have the advantage. If we now double down on our own military capacity mm-hmm. and, and keep pace, then maybe that's the best way to avoid conflict. I come from the Reagan era, uh, uh, peace through strength, uh, truly believe that that's how we won the Cold War and uh, uh, with uh, Russia and the Soviet Union. Uh, and that may be how we win the Cold War with China, uh, by being just as strong, if not stronger than they are. They understand the balance of power and will act accordingly. I could ask you the same question about Ukraine uh, with regard to our relationship with Russia. Jeannie, do we really believe uh, that that military action could come from Taiwan, that either side would allow that to happen? 
I think it's a concern. I think we are hoping that that doesn't happen, but I do think it's a concern. And it wasn't yet, you know, a couple months ago that we saw test China testing rather these hypersonic tests, these these weapons, and they are building a military. Now we're talking, you know, just as the president has signed what a seven hundred and sixty-eight billion dollar uh, bill for the military, yeah. um, and yet we seven hundred sixty-eight billion defense bill, but you know. We have a right to be concerned about where China is, that is, is increasing its network of underground silos. Um, there is concern because it has not been open to joining nuclear arms control talks and all of this going on as we are concerned, rightly so, about the future of Taiwan. So, you know, I don't think we can be clear or sure about what is going to happen there. And I think the president is right to be concerned, but I would like to see him lay out what are the options and how are we going to address it. What's your thought, Rick, on a summit when we're talking about hypersonic missile tests? Some of this stuff is getting pretty close to the line. Do they need to be talking or is that rewarding China for bad behavior? I think you hit the nail right on the head there, Joe. We just had a summit, three hours with Xi and Joe Biden virtually, and nothing got accomplished, really. I mean, there was no agreements. There were no directionals. I mean, a bunch of issues were discussed. Uh, and, and if anything, I look back on that and I say, OK, well, what, why did we do that? What was it in it for us? Did we uh, win the public relations war? Did we uh, get them to agree to limitations on military buildup? No. And so... I think that if you have an outcome you desire, if it's a, a nuclear treaty uh, or something like that, and you believe you can get it, you only meet with uh, 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 President Xi if you already have that agreement underway. And, 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 the, and the simple fact of it is, is you're just going through the kabuki dance of a signing and, and an announcement. That is the way summits were in the past. And I think the Biden administration has enough old hands on that they would look at this and say, we can't meet with this guy, given the legitimacy of the Western world and, and not get anything for it. So what's the strategy in the new year then, Jeannie? Is it, is it working with our allies, projecting strength in the Asia-Pacific region? That is what we're hearing. Um, and I think you hear from, you know, Mark Milley and others. I mean, he is making project projections that in the next, you know, 10 to 20 years that this is going to be the biggest strategic challenge to the United States yeah. is going to be coming from China and their military prowess and the growth that we've seen in the last several decades is really significant. So, you know, yes, our allies are important. I think face-to-face -face communication, I don't think there's a big loss there, but it's got to be more than that. And again, containment's the one thing we keep hearing, but we don't have a good definition from the administration yet as to what that means exactly and what it might look like. Spending and time. how do you do that and keep, you know, competing economically is a big question. Sorry to interrupt, Jeannie. Our, our panel today, Bloomberg Politics. Contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis with us on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. We spent a good chunk of time this hour talking about how our relationship with China will be defined in 2022. It's certainly a major issue for the Biden administration, but it's not the only one, especially as we consider uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan and our relationship currently with Russia. 
both of which have left a lot of people concerned about the foreign policy in this White House. And we're discussing all of this with Jeannie and Rick Bloomberg Politics contributors, Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan was an important moment as we look back on this past year, Rick. This was a White House, Jeannie mentioned a little earlier in the hour, that was supposed to be different, that was supposed to be sensitive to foreign policy, to be deeply experienced, starting with the president himself, longtime foreign relations uh, committee chair in the U.S. Senate, member of the committee. What do you think about the credibility uh, that may have been lost in the withdrawal from Afghanistan and how much of a mess is left behind? I think it really signaled uh, the decline of this administration in its first year. Uh, if you'll remember, I mean, this administration was on a roll. Uh, American Rescue Plan in January, you know, uh, 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 all of a sudden they've gotten the jobs plan done in March. Uh, his job approval rating was going incredibly well. And then they announced in April, they're gonna withdraw from Afghanistan. And by August, they do it in the sloppiest way possible. And, and not since then have they seen any positives uh, really come out of the administration. And so uh, I think it was this, the dog whistle that actually hearkened the decline of the first year of the Biden administration. Wow. Nobody wants to give credit to foreign policy as being something that could affect domestic policy. But it, it, it's either an incredible coincidence or you'd have to admit that people lost confidence in the ability of this administration to function uh, by virtue of the disaster called the Afghanistan withdrawal. I know as a Democrat, you were very critical of the administration during that time. And we went through this in real time together uh, here on the air, Jeannie. I just wonder what you make of the fallout. It, it's not being discussed uh, in a broader forum. It's not it's not the news story of the day that's getting a lot of talk or analysis but there's still festering problems in Afghanistan that we may well have to manage. Absolutely, there are. And, you know, you look just at the issue, and I shouldn't even use the word just, um, the treatment of women, the reports yeah. we're getting over there, of the treatment of women and girls over there. You look at the amount of poverty, the number of people going hungry. I mean, the list just keeps ratcheting up. And this was the fear when the United States left in the way that it did. Mm -hmm was we left a vacuum and we allowed these forces to come in and fill that vacuum. And that's always the fear. And, you know, Joe Biden is not the only one who owns this. But, of course, he was at the helm. And the execution of our withdrawal, even if you support it, support the withdrawal in the end, the execution was poorly managed. I mean, look at the loss of life alone amongst Americans, let alone people on the ground. So it's something that he's going to have to contend with going forward. And we haven't seen a real strategy out of the White House. You know, you look at our relationship with Pakistan, for instance, right on the border. It's, um, you know, something you're seeing a lot of talk about these days. They still haven't had a concerted conversation with Imran Khan, and he's a year into his administration. These are problems for the, for the White House. Well, one of the other, of course, great fears, Rick, was that Afghanistan would once again become a base for terror. We have not seen that happen. Uh, we also haven't heard uh, over the horizon references for a bit. Is this the new reality in Afghanistan or is it something you'll be worried about in 2022? Oh, I think people will be worried about it in the national security field. They, yeah. they know they can't see uh, the events and activities that are happening within uh, the terrorist organizations that occupy space in um, in Afghanistan. We, we know from news reports that there is an active war going on internally uh, with the Taliban versus uh, ISIS. And, 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 and 
you know, when your enemies are destroying each other, get out of the way, is the old saying. Um, uh, this may keep uh, the Taliban government pinned down for a while. Uh, we also know that the Northern Alliance has constructed itself to the point where they, they could pose a threat to the Taliban. So I don't think we've seen at all the conclusion of what will happen in Afghanistan. Um, some of those options could be better for the United States, but some are a lot worse, and that is uh, uh, groups that threaten our existence, you know, having uh, a safe haven in a place where we thought we'd spent the blood and treasure to deny them right. uh, many years ago. You don't see a world genie in which U.S. troops are sent back to Afghanistan to retake Bagram or some of the other ideas we heard about last summer. It's hard to imagine in the short term seeing anything like that, there being any political will to do that. And yet, as we know, all having lived through 9-11, mm -hmm. you sort of never predict what's going to happen because events occur. If there is a widespread terrorist attack, for instance, on U.S. soil that emanates from that region, what does the United States do? What does Biden do? Does he not respond by sending in troops? So, you know, I don't see it happening in the short term, but you can't predict those kinds of events that would get us back involved where we've been so many times before. Yeah, we talk about public sentiment. And I don't know, Rick, when you get to the end of next year, when we're talking about voting in the midterms, what will be uh, America's memory of this? Or will it simply be, hey, Joe Biden is the guy who got us out of Afghanistan? You know, I don't think it'll be so much about the success of Afghanistan, you know, getting troops out. Um, I think you sort of mark that to market. Uh, it's been around a long time and, and positive news never really gets much traction beyond the event itself. It's the negativity that mm. gets uh, uh, replayed in commercials all around America in these congressional districts and states. And that will be the incompetent withdrawal, right? I mean, the competency issues were what we thought, as you remarked, uh, we were getting away from as we moved past the Trump administration. Uh, and this demonstrated a level of incompetency within the Biden administration that I think shocked voters. And, and if reminded of that, uh, may depress the Democratic turnout because it wasn't just Republican voters who were shocked. It was Democratic voters who were shocked, too. Of course, Russia was watching all of this happen. And with its experience, its long experience uh, going back to the Soviet days in Afghanistan, maybe not a lot of surprises there, but Russia pretty quick to to, to try to fill the vacuum, genie. And I wonder how our relationship with Vladimir Putin will be defined in 2022. This is a whole other story. We talked earlier about China. Russia is one that is critically important and urgent right now with 100,000 troops lined up against the Ukrainian border. This is about as important as it gets for the Biden administration when it comes to geopolitics. That's right. And and of course, you know, Russia, you know, focused as it is on the Ukraine, but also focused on this NATO alliance and, you know, wants to make sure that the United States and the NATO alliance are not moving into its territory. So, you know, they have the president came in, you know, vowing to reestablish these re alliances in a way that he didn't feel the previous administration did. And we are seeing pushback on that. Um, so, you know, what Putin does, whether he in fact sends troops in, you know, and again, the question becomes, if he does, how does the United States respond? Biden has said we will not send troops in. Um, you know, we can support in other ways. We, you know, without being a member of NATO, there is no obligation on our part to mm -hmm. do something like that. But those are very serious questions. And how far, if he chooses to act, if Putin does, does the United States go in response? And let's not forget, of course, you've got a European countries dependent on Russia for oil. So 
that is another big challenge for this administration as they try to negotiate this relationship with Putin. Does Vladimir Putin really want to test the U.S. militarily like like this, Rick, or is this simply uh, a, a very aggressive way? I mean, moving hundred a hundred thousand troops is something. Is this a very aggressive way of keeping NATO out? Sure. It threatening us uh, uh, could actually make NATO uh, more likely to come into the region. Do you believe that? Uh, and uh, it could. Uh, certainly the Ukrainians want it. And, and in so much as we want Ukraine to remain independent, uh, that w- that is the motivating factor. But that being said, I mean, the Russians, I really don't think they that, that Vladimir Putin thinks he's risking much because uh, he's got to keep his military moving all the time anyway. Right. I mean, they, they they're prone to drunkenness and sloth. And uh, and, and so uh, uh, if he keeps them on the border and he keeps them moving around, this is good training for him. He's going to look at this and say, you know, this shows my might. But more importantly, uh, we are in a, a world where uh, the United States is going to get tested every single day by some authoritarian regime, right? Everybody who uh, leads a country under authoritarian regime sees us as the, 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 the test of their mettle. And, and, and the Chinese are watching this Russian test very closely because as, as we've talked about a lot on this show, their expectations for consolidation of China mm. with the mm. you know, takeover of Taiwan uh, will be influenced, at least influenced by our conduct against Russia on the border of the Ukraine. And so this is a big global issue, not just one in Eastern Europe. Can't separate these. Uh, I believe it was Congressman McCall, as a matter of fact, uh, who was with us a couple of weeks ago, connecting the dots, Jeannie, between Afghanistan, Ukraine and Taiwan. Is the White House playing that level of 3D chess to keep up? They have to be. Um, and it's absolutely right to connect those dots. And, and it really is, to a certain extent, a no-win situation for the Biden administration here as as you look at these sort of moving parts and moving targets, if you will, and how they respond at each point as they are being pressured is a challenge because, of course, the Biden administration has said repeatedly and obviously gotten out of Afghanistan to make this point that we will not be sending our troops in. What else then do we do? How do we respond? You know, you look at just the issue of of Ukraine, for instance. If we keep sending more arms into the Ukraine, that's not going to be enough to deter Russia. So what do you do next? And this is always the problem that we're going to face when they set up front that we won't be sending troops in, which most Americans agree with. So they're between a rock and a hard place here. Fascinating panel with Jeannie and Rick Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. We thank you as ever for the insights here on Bloomberg Sound Off. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.